Welcome to the House of Mourning. Hey there, I'm your host, Joelle Coteau Willard, and this podcast is a space where my guests and I explore the raw, unfiltered truths and inner knowings we tap into in grief and in life after loss and trauma. We reject societal norms that condition us into bypassing and fast forwarding through the work of healing. My personal desire to normalize grief is the result of my own healing journey, having lost my father at the age of 33, and most recently the death of my second son late term in pregnancy. For those of you that find yourself in grief, recalibrating after loss or healing from trauma, I honor you. Perhaps you are here because you are navigating supporting a loved one who is grieving or on a healing journey. If so, way to show up for yourself and them. Wherever you are on the journey, all of you is welcome here. Hello, welcome back. Today's episode of the House of Mourning is a beautiful one with a beautiful human who has been journeying and leading in the grief and loss community for quite some time. And I've known her in a different capacity through a different community that we met in for also quite some time, almost a decade. Not really sure what year we met, but wow. Is she a force? So on the pod today, we have Anne Gudger, who is an essay and memoir writer who writes hard and loves harder. She's been published in the Rumpus, Real Simple Magazine, Pank, Citroen Review, Sweet Lit, Columbia Journal, The Normal School, just to name a few. She has been a Best of the Net nominee twice. And her debut memoir called The Fifth Chamber, which is published by Jaded Ebe's Press, just came out in September of 2023. So, wow, that's exciting. And at the start of the pandemic with her beloved daughter, Maria, she co-founded Coffee and Grief, a community that includes a monthly reading series focused on grief in its many outfits. Everybody grieves, and when we share grief, we feel less alone. With the success of their Coffee and Grief community, they launched now a podcast called Coffee, Grief, and Gratitude. So Anne's big purpose is to normalize grief and to give grief a microphone. Welcome, Annie, to the House of Mourning. Oh, Joelle, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's my honor. So please tell us about your grief and loss journey. Absolutely. Well, I always say that uh, it really started when I was pregnant and 28 years old. My husband, who was 36 at the time, died suddenly in a car accident. Um, I was pregnant with our first only child and everything in my life changed in an instant. You know, there was no warning. There was no 
every grief is different. And for me, like the shock and the trauma of it happening so suddenly really absolutely undid me. Um, and that was now, that was 36 years ago. So my perspective is really different. I have this close-up view because I still carry it in my body, but I also have this long view. So I always like to say that um, I grieved hard and wide, and eventually I found my way back to me. Eventually I found love again. I married my fabulous husband, Scott, and we had our beautiful daughter, Maria. So I have my family of husband and two kids that I'd always dreamed of. Um, and through all that, I mean, I always say that grief is the source of my superpowers because it really is where I learned a deeper compassion. It's where I learned to not take time for granted. It's where I learned to be me with my whole big heart out in the world and tell people I love them on the regular. Right. Yeah. Wow. Um, when you think back to that moment and the, you know, all, I think of the 36 years and all the different stages and phases, not that grief is linear, unlike what we're conditioned to believe. However, when I think of those 36 years of being in a process of healing, of feeling through it and you know, transforming, as I also like to, to talk about grief, it can be transformative, I believe, is what do you, what would you say was the hardest part about losing your husband? It's a really good question. Um, early, I mean, the hardest part about losing him was everything, right? Like it was, as I said, it was so sudden. I was pregnant, you know, we were this, we'd been married three years, three and a half years and everything in my world that I'd been planning on, all the hope that I had, this life I dreamed of having with him and with our son and with another, all the things, it was gone. Like it was gone in a snap. There was no warning. There was, there was nothing. And I really, it's like my whole life just felt shattered, right? And like everything was hard. Getting out of bed was, everything was hard. It's hard to get out of bed. It was hard to do anything. And then, and also there I was six months pregnant with my son, right? So, um, my, my goal at the time was just like to do whatever I could do to continue to nourish him and his growth. Um, and as I said early on, like my family held me up and I was really, I didn't really care about me, right? I didn't care about me healing in the beginning because. My goal, my goal was to have a healthy baby. Yeah. My goal was to have a healthy baby. And it really did. Like it just, you know, people talk about having their world shattered and that's how I felt like everything that I'd hoped for, dreamed about, planned on the things that I thought that I thought were mine turned out they weren't right. And I, I'm, I've said often, like we think time is a given and it's just not because none of us knows, none of us knows how long we get to be here in this lifetime on this earth. Um, and that is true for us as ourselves. And it's true for the people who we, who we go around with in this lifetime. We just, we never know. And for me, learning to navigate that knife edge of, um, of having, like, I have a true understanding in my body that, that we just don't know. Right. And then at the same time, I had to learn how to still have a daily life and not constantly be in the fear of, of, I didn't know when it would be my time. Because early on, I was also, then I was terrified that I was going to die. 
and leave my son who came into this world as an innocence, uh, leave him with, without either parent. That was a big fear for a long time. Yeah. There's so much fragility that can happen when you experience, you know, the veil being so thin and, and death being just right up against life. And most of the times we don't, we're not aware of it, you know, until we experience, we're forced kind of up to it. And like, I know, um, obviously I haven't experienced the sim, the similar kind of loss. It makes me think of, um, a, how I relate is when my dad died, when I was 33, I kept thinking of, oh my God, if my mother dies, I have no parents. Like, you know, and it, it just, it just was like this thought of like, oh my God, like my dad died. My mom, like and my mom, like all I have is my mom. And if she dies, you know, like, oh my God, you know, it was just, and I would never think of thoughts like that um, before, you know, like it, it brings us face to our mortality and it can bring on a lot of those fears. And when I imagine what your family, you specifically alone in that moment, yes, you had your baby Jake inside of you, but it, it makes me wonder like Jake's about Jake, you know, and, and how his birth like how when he came into the world, like I obviously it was so soon after it was only three months and you're in, in your, I mean, the hormones and growing a human is complex in itself. Birthing one, your first birth, I believe, you know, but how did the grief come out with him? Like, did a lot of grief come out when, as he grew and he was young, like knowing that he wouldn't meet his dad or I'm just curious how all of that was. Well, you should get my son on here. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's really, it's a very interesting cause I mean, you know, I'm an author and I write about it a lot. So I think about it a lot and he and I have always talked about it. So my thing from him with him from the beginning was this is not a secret. This is just, this is what happened in our lives. This is part of our history. It's part of our story. It's part of your story. And it was always, um, if you've heard my daughter at all on the things that we do together, uh, it gets me every time. And it's so true that she just says, like she grew up with grief being normal in our house, right? Because it's something that we talked about. I never wanted it to be a surprise for Jake. I never wanted, you know, I remarried, I married Scott when Jake was, how old was Jake? Two and a half. Jake was two and a half when we got married. So mm -hmm. he doesn't have, and we've talked about this a lot. He doesn't have conscious memory of it just being the two of us. Um, in his conscious mm -hmm. memory, it's always been Scott. But of course, he has all that memory in his unconscious when it was the two of us. Um, and I would ask him in his, you know, just like checking in with him, how was it going? And for quite a while, he said, um, at one point, I'll always remember him saying to me, you know, mom, I don't want to, I don't want to upset you, but I didn't know him. And I know dad, he's, Scott is his dad, right? So we say like, dad Kent, my first husband, because I always want Jake to know that was his pure intention is to be his father. So we refer to him as dad mm -hmm. Kent. 
and Scott is Jake's dad. And for a long time, it's really how he felt about it. And we, I just always kept the door open, right? Cause I knew that there would, I knew that there would come a time. And then when he was in his early to mid twenties, he got much more curious about it. And, and then we had other talks and he has had, um, of course he's had a deep sadness about it. Um, Scott is an amazing father and it, and we're lucky and blessed that he's had that love, but he also has this deep sorrow. And I, you know, those two things can go together. That's so part of why I think it's important to talk about grief, like love and sorrow, they can hold hands and one doesn't have to eclipse the other. Um, and I think now for Jake in this moment, right now, I'm thrilled to say that his wife is pregnant and they are expecting their first child. Um, and he and I have definitely talked about, and the two of them have talked a lot about, he's going to have some grief that he's not, that, you know, he can't, you can't decide ahead of time how it's going to be for you because you don't know. And my guess is, even though he's done a lot of work around it, um, my guess is that he's going to have some really unexpected grief when he becomes a father, along with all the joy that goes with it. Right. But it is that complex experience. Um, because he'll, he'll see, this is going to make me cry, but he's going to see in a, in a deeper way than he has ever before. Um, what Kent did not get to experience, right? His Kent wasn't here when Jake was born. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it, 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 it's like the grief that fell out of me when my first son was born, knowing that my father would never meet him earthside, would never play with him, would never, you know, do the things that my dad loved to do. Um, and, and of course, it's different, you know, because Jake didn't know what know his father per se right in the in the flesh however yeah you know when you talk about your desire to like in your bio to to give grief a microphone and to normalize grief like knowing all that you just shared and your life shaking experience in your loss and since rebuilding in this you know, beautiful life that you have. What is your take on why it's important to normalize grief? Like it was in your home, you've done it in your legacy here. Now you're doing it wider in community, but why is that important? Well, um, you know, you and I have talked about this some, right? So culturally we're squeamish about grief. Culturally, people like they're just hoping that their roof isn't going to fall in, right? Um, we just don't, it's not something we're comfortable talking about. And so for me, that having, having had the, I felt early on after Kent died that if I didn't really do something meaningful with that death, that somehow it was going to diminish his death, which that's a story I told myself, but it also helped me to be like, no, I'm going to write about it. I'm going to be a voice. I'm going to be a voice for grief. I'm going to be a voice for people telling their stories. Cause I really do. We had a, um, you know, I run this monthly reading series and one of our readers who was on recently said amongst other beautiful things, a wound is a wound until you show it to someone. 
right? And he, he read, he's a poet. He read that line and I started crying and I asked him later, like, can I put that up on our page? Cause to me, that's what we're doing, right? A wound is a wound until you show it to someone. And, and in that showing, um, we feel less alone. Like people, you know, we talk about see feeling seen and heard. Um, and while sometimes I feel like those, you know, those are sort of catchphrases, they're also true, right? So when we share our grief stories, we realize like early on in my grief, I was sure I was the only person that that could have possibly happened to, right? Who else could be young at the beginning of their life, so in love with their husband, so excited to have a baby. My teaching career was taking on all the things. We just bought a house, right? I just felt on the beginning of the beautiful parts about being an adult. And, and I really did feel singled out. And one of the best things I did for myself was to join a support group. And I was in a support group of young widows, which meant we were all under 40 and we all had children. I was the youngest one of the group and Jake was the youngest kid. Um, but like that, that saved me. That's where I learned to save myself was with those women because we, because we talked about it. And even though, of course, all our griefs were different, you know, we had in common that we'd all been widowed young, yet our stories were all different. And somehow the heaviness of my story got to lift some by being in that group. And I went from, I was the last one to join it. So when I first joined it, like they were a form group, they knew each other. The first time I went, I was sure I was in the wrong place because they were like laughing, right? And I was barely getting out of bed when I went. Um, but I, I was part of that group for a few years. I'm still really dear friends with one of the women from that group 36 years later because uh, they like they meant everything to me, um, as did my family and my close friends. But there were there was healing that happened with people who had had a similar experience that I just couldn't get another way. So I feel like I got far from your question. But, um no, no, that's, that's beautiful. I love the, what you said there with, you know, your experience in that support group and of like, they, that group saved me and also it helped me. And I think you said it helped me save my life and what a lot of the things that I think of in, in grief are there's like this meme that I saw a friend of mine post on Instagram and it's with an audio and what have you And the audio is, is, is basically says no one's coming to save you. And, you know, in grief, it's like, it's hard. It's ugly. It's tough. Um, and it's work to get through it. And it's not fun and you don't want to be in it in the first place. And, you know, there's a lot of resistance that can come up and anger and, and all these things. And at the end of the day, though, nobody can do it for you. Nobody can save you, quote unquote, from it, even though we're taught to want to save people from it and get them out of it. Right. We're taught to, like, get out of it, you know, or like avoid it. But that that idea of like being in a group and things being lifted off of you in time, right? It, it's just a beautiful, beautiful visual that I'm seeing. Well, and I do. I'm, you know, I believe that I totally agree, right? In the end, you're the one who has to do it, 
right? I used to say that writing saved me that I realized, no, I, I saved myself writing. Um, and yet while you're, while you're the one, while in the end it is you, um, sharing some of that together just made such a huge difference. And it's what I really encourage people to do. Um, because we can, while we cannot ever fix another in anything, we can walk with them. We can sit with them. We can just be with them. And to me, like that's the best grief support. There is no fixing. There are no magic words, right? But just to walk with someone. And for me now, all these years and all the work that I've done, and, you know, I run a, a writing group too, that's around grief. And I always tell them one of the most beautiful things is to witness another's grief, another's grief, because when we're grieving, we are just so split open. You can only be your authentic self, right? There's just no energy to be anything different. And there's something, um, I know it sounds weird, but there's just something so beautiful about that. Um, even though it is the hardest thing I've ever done, it's also where I felt like I got to really see my soul. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's, that's how I view it. Like it is soul work. And, um, you know, I think it's when we, when we go into the personality aspect and we stay only in the personality aspect, I think that's why a lot of people can get stuck in, in grief and, and are afraid of getting stuck in it. Um, is this layer of like the personality and I will say the ego of like, you know, which also sometimes we can land in victimhood of feeling shafted by life and hard and just like screwed over. And like, you know, why did this happen to me? Which I view that all as being like questions of the ego and the personality, which are valid. And I'm not saying they're not valid. However, the tricky thing is, is if we stay there. And I think the shift is to go deeper where you are and can. I mean, if you don't believe in a soul, then I would argue that you can't probably go there, to, you know, like in your journey. And that's fine. But for me, that's where that's where the real work has been, like on the soul level of what is here for me to uncover and what is this deeper journey that I am on like it or not. Right. So I love that you said that, that soul word. Um, Cause how do you, you know, for meaning making machines. And when I think of Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning, and I think of what I know to be true, what I believe to be true, that we are meaning making machines. People misinterpret that as like toxic positivity stuff. And that's not where I'm going. But what meaning have you made out of like, do you believe in soulmates? And like Ken was one and then now Scott like, how does it fit in your mind? And maybe you don't have a solid answer, but I'm curious to hear. Wow. I mean, I do believe in soulmates and I do believe that when we're lucky, we have more than, I, I don't believe in an exclusive soulmate. I'll say that. Um, and cause I think culturally when we talk about soulmates, everyone thinks there's just like your one perfect match. 
I always say I am so lucky and grateful to have been married to two beautiful men. And I, it's never lost on me that that is unusual, right? Like I have had two beautiful, what two beautiful marriages and, and I will be forever grateful for that. Um, and I feel like they're both, they've both been my soulmates, right? There's that, there's that super deep connection. Um, and I've known them both in, I'm a big believer in past lives and I've known them both in other times and I will probably know them both in future times. Um, so the, yeah, I mean the, the finding meaning for me is diff- is more than just around my relationships with them. Like finding meaning for me through my deep grief was started out with a relationship with myself and, and in like really, really learning to love myself and to, and to come to terms with the fact that the life I thought I was going to have, I wasn't going to have that life, but I was going to have another life. And it was also going to be a beautiful life. And that took me time. That's not a thing that I could like snap my fingers and get to there. Right. That definitely took time, but to get to a place where I realized, and I've talked and written a lot about, um, I also believe in parallel universes, right? So part of my belief is like in another, in a parallel life, and maybe it's just like super close to my skin. I don't know. I don't know where it is, but Kent still exists. And there's me with him and there's Jake. And we had, I always say we had a daughter who looked like me because Maria looks more like Scott than she looks like me, right? So that is existing over there, but that's not the door I walk through, right? And I didn't get to choose what happened, but I do get to choose how I respond to that and what I created after that. So I walk through a different door and in time, like really, really deeply working on myself um, in time. Then there was Scott and then there was Maria. And, you know, it's not like the hard parts are then all behind me because things can still come up. Even all these years later, things can still come up. When Jake got married, Jake's been married for five years now. And when he got married, I had this deep grief that I was not expecting. And even telling you that makes me feel like I could cry again. And it really took me by surprise, right? Because here it's this joyous day and I love my kids. Oh my gosh, I love my kids so deep and wide. And I love my daughter-in-law. I love my son-in-law. I was so happy and excited for him. Uh, Maria had gotten married two years before, so I'd had a kid get married. I knew the pure bliss of watching your child become partners with someone who they love deeply. I knew that. And so it really took me by surprise when I had this, just this deep grief for Jake. And thank goodness it was a couple, it wasn't on the day of, by the day of, I was good. But like leading up um, as we were getting ready, I just had this deep, deep sadness that Kent was going to miss it. And it surprised me because Kent had missed everything. Yet he didn't, he didn't, because I always believe that he comes through, right? And we've always kept him in our life. We always talk about him. We, I honor his birthday. I honor my wedding anniversary with him. Um, you know, my kids know like Kent loved cherry Coke, Coke, which I do not. However, anytime there's a Kent thing, there's a cherry Coke and everybody, everyone who knows me knows, okay, that's, that's having Kent at the table. There's the cherry Coke. Um, but I just had this deep sadness that he was going to miss that. Right. And then thank goodness, my dear friend, Liz, who is my friend, I'm still friends with from my support group. I called her, this is actually in my book. I called her and I'm like, it's a 911 call. Um, she didn't pick up her phone. She's calling back a few minutes later. And I'm like, I am just coming undone. What's happening? And she was so sweet because she didn't say the things people wanted to say, like, 
What do you mean? You're happy. You have Scott. What do you mean? She said, I'm surprised it took you so long to call me was her first thing. And then we laughed because we always laugh. Um, she said, of course you're sad. He's missing your son's biggest day in his life. Right. And then she said, you have to do what you've always done all these years. You got to feel your way through it. And you know, it's going to make me cry. You know that it's going to be okay. And you know, he's going to get married and you're going to cry the mama tears that mamas cry when their kids get married. And it's going to be beautiful. And it was, I mean, his wedding day was glorious and Kent definitely showed up. I like to say like it was a summer day. There was no wind. And right before we walked Jake down, my skirt got ruffled and Jake's hair got ruffled. And I was like, oh, there he is. Um, after the ceremony, so many people said to me, did you feel Kent here? Did you feel him? Because they did. So he didn't miss out. Oh, girl, I am just choking back the tears. Because, wow, I love that. I am so honored that you shared that with us. And um, I've experienced something similar walking down the aisle because my dad died um, six months before, um, technically five, before my wedding. And I knew that I would be like hooped either way, right? Go on with it cancel it both would be horrifically difficult crappy just like garbage choices in terms of my grief right in terms of like have a wedding my dad's not at it don't have a wedding because my dad died not what my dad would have wanted you know whatever so when I was walking down the aisle because I chose to have my dad's best friend and some other family members um, that he was like super close with. So they walk down the aisle first because I didn't feel comfortable walking down the aisle with any other man in his place. And but I did walk down with my mother and halfway through and it was hard. It was horribly hard to even just like take a step. Um, but halfway through, I was overcome with I like lost my breath and something just like like it was like I don't know what it was it was a moment and I had to stop and I like almost froze but there's something else going on and I don't know it wasn't evident like a wind or it wasn't similarly like visible but my, a friend of mine who was also my medium, which is a conversation for another day, but she told me she was there and she told me that that was my dad and that he like had basically like stopped me for a minute to like, let me know that I, he was there. And I believe in things like that. And I think that when you lose people, you're either open to signs or you're not. And that's fine. But it's surprising when you are open, what can come through and what you can notice, right? And so I'm so happy that you all had that moment with him and you know that you know that he showed up, right? And um, oh my goodness, thank you for sharing that. Um, oh my gosh, now you to, have me To kind of move. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, girl. 
we're going to just like, you know, we're going to like Friday cry together, you know, days. We're just going to keep good. waiting up. And, Crying you know? is good. Like when we cry, I <laughs> always say like, you know, I'm a crier. And then um, it also helps other people release when they're like sort of holding it back. Like, no, just cry. Crying is good. Yes. Yeah, yes. And I want to go, um, Annie. So thank you for sharing that beautiful. Oh my God. You really got me good there, girl. Um, I want to go back to some things that you've spoken about and also the, the title choice for your bodies of work, right? Like, and by bodies of work, I want to get to your book that will be next. Um, I mean, your bodies of leadership and community that you've built and like now your podcast and right. The name of like coffee. I love hello. Duh. I mean, you don't have to explain that one. <laughs> um, and you're also, are you in Portland? I am. Which I think of like Seattle, Portland coffee. Anyhow, I yep. love those areas. Um, but the grief and gratitude. I'd like you to share, how do you view that relationship and what has been your journey in grief to gratitude or through gratitude? How do they correlate to you? Well, I mean, to me, they absolutely go together, right? And as you and I've talked about, like in the beginning, in the beginning when everything was just so, so hard gratitude was not part of my grief journey. In the beginning, I just felt devastated. But, and as I moved along and as I worked my way and felt my way through my grief, and there are so many things that I did to help myself, including writing about it endlessly. Um, I started, so I've always been, I've, this is going to say, I've like, I've always been gen, genuinely a happy person, right? I was not early on in my grief. But I also knew that that is really who I am. I know that that is really my true nature. So as I started being able to look for beauty again and to look for joy again, and I really started in very small ways to be grateful for really small things. I was so grateful for Jake. I was so grateful to have this healthy baby who was born into this sadness, um, but born into like me just cracked open and my real self. Um, so it really started with him and my family, like my family, my family held me up through the darkest time. Right. So I just started being aware of gratitude in small ways, not this big, Oh, I'm so grateful for it all, but really grateful to wake up, grateful to have breath, grateful. I'm grateful for clean water, right? They're like things that sometimes get, can get taken for granted. That is really where it started. And as I, as time went by, and that is so my practice is to come from gratitude. You know, when you, when you are grateful, you see more, you experience more to be grateful about. And in time, I really realized that so much of my gratitude grew out of my grief. And, you know, I like to say like, I will never, I'll never be grateful that Kent died because that I never will be. I can't imagine that but I will always be grateful for what came afterwards. I'll always be grateful for Jake. I'll always be grateful for the life that I built. I'm grateful for, for Scott. I'm grateful for Maria. And I'm grateful for the ways that I could take, um, that I could speak about grief in a bigger way than, I mean, this would not have been my path 
if my first husband hadn't died, right? And I like to say, like, I don't know who I would be if I had gotten to stay on that path. I like to think that I would still, <laughs> that I'd still be me, right? Because my come from is love, right? And and I I would hope that I would that my heart would be just as big as it is, but I don't know. What I do know is I had I got to make other choices, and because I walked through this grief door. I eventually realized like I, I get to decide and what's the meaning that I'm going to make out of it. And for me, it was really about being grateful um, for the smallest things to the biggest things. And because that's the heart space that I'm in, um, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I can still have bad days. Who doesn't? Right. But, but I, but I, whenever I turn my focus back to gratitude, it just makes my heart all soft and yeah. Wow, thank you for sharing that. The the gratitude component. I mean, it we have um it reminds me of a quote that we have up in the center that I work at, at which is essentially a grief and loss support center for people who've experienced pregnancy or infant loss of any kind. And the quote is it's a Harry Potter quote. And it's happiness can be found even in the darkest times. If only, if, if one only remembers to turn on the light. Um, And that's the good old Dumbledore who shared that, but you know, it's like, you can be surrounded by darkness. You can be in the darkest moments and you can still see the crack in the floor, not in the floor, but like under the door, you can see the light coming in. And you can, you know, if you position yourself, all you see is dark. You can, you can choose, you don't have to, but you can choose to look at the light, you know, and, and build, build that up. But it's a, it's, um, it's beautiful in the sense that I relate to it because I do relieve, uh, believe, and I relate to early in my grief, I felt that I was seeing, I was noticing, putting things together that in my grief, I was being given gifts, right? The death of my son was not a gift and it never will be. It was, it was hell. However, in the grief process, I was, I was identifying like, this is a gift. Okay. This, this is another gift. Like, huh? Like these, I can't deny the presence of gifts in these, in this destruction yeah. and this heartbreak, you know, um, and it's that paradox, but, and that, and I, I have heard other people in grief and loss in general share about that parallel life, that parallel universe, you know, especially people who have, um, like in the context of pregnancy and infant loss is like people who don't have living children yet and they've had multiple losses or um, they have, you know, a child, you know, they don't, or, or for myself, like I have a living child and then I have an angel baby. Like my living child will live every year, right? You know, God willing, healthy and all those things. And my angel baby though, he still, I still see his life, Right. He's going to, it's going to be his, um, he would have been one in the next couple of weeks had he been full term, had he been healthy and been born around his due date, 
And that will like 30 years from now, like you're still celebrating your marriage dates. You're, you're still having anniversaries and I don't even want to do this. Like you're celebrating those, the marriage that is no longer, but will always be, you know, so that parallel universe is, is so beautiful. So, uh, as we move to close here, I was, was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your book. I have pre-ordered it. I'm Yay, excited to add thank it you, to my you. heart collection. Tell us, Annie, anything you want to about your book, The Fifth Chamber. Well, it is, um, it's a memoir. It is about the loss of Kent and me finding my way back to me. And I love to say that it's more of a love story than a loss story. Um, I did my best to land on this sweet spot of writing true from my experience, what my experience was like all those years ago, but also writing from the long view. The whole time I was writing, I kept asking myself, why now? Right? It's different to tell a story that started 36 years ago. Um, but it always has been, I, you know, I wrote the book I was looking for, right? Because after my husband died, I really wanted somebody's personal story and um, grief journals memoir wasn't as popular 36 years ago as it is now. So I've tried, I've done my best to like land on that sweet spot of then and now. I like to say that it's, it's written from the scar, not from the wound, which is a, those are two different kinds of stories, right? And, um, and yet it's not all, the hard parts are hard, right? It's not all tied up with a bow. I want somebody, I want anybody reading it who has had their own loss. They know someone's had a loss. As long, anyone who's alive is going to have loss, right? So it can just be, I've imagined it as, as on your bedside. And when you can't sleep, you can flip it open. The chapters are super short. You can read a couple chapters. You can read the earlier, harder. You can read the later um, where there's more grace, whatever it is that's going to fill up your cup for then. And I'll also say like the title, it's called the fifth chamber. As in, if your heart had a fifth chamber, what would you put in it? Um, and that was something I thought a lot about as my love grew and as my heart grew. Like, wow, what if there physically was a, a fifth chamber in my heart? What would I put in mine? Um, so that is that is definitely a thread throughout the book that I didn't expect until I got done writing it. And I realized, oh, that's what this book is about. Growing your heart, growing your love and and embodying it too. Embodying that healing over time. Over time. I look forward to reading it. Well, thank I you so much for ordering it. it. It'll be here soon. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And our my final question for today is, what advice do you have for people who love someone in grief and who are struggling because they just feel like they don't know how to best support them? Thank you for asking that question. It's, you know, on the podcast Maria and I do, it's something we ask all the time because people have different answers. And for me, it's really just to be with the person, be with the person. If you're uncomfortable, tell them that you're uncomfortable, but you're still there. You're showing up, right? Be with them, be in contact with them. Um, if you, you know, it's so easy now with text, with texting people, I think is good just to say, Hey, I'm thinking about you. No need to respond. Leave a voice message that says, I'm thinking about you. I love you. 
no need to respond. Um, people get so uncomfortable about what to do with their loved ones who are grieving that sometimes they go away. Like I'm probably true for, it's true for most anybody grieving. Like I lost some of my dear friendships that I couldn't imagine I would lose. And on the flip side of that, I had people come into my life who I didn't even know were going to be in my life. Right. So, um, it is like, like just, just being with someone. And if there's any, if you have any thought that starts with the words, at least, then keep that thought to yourself. Don't say to your grieving person, at least he lived for 36 years. At least he didn't have cancer. Um, uh, actually, one of the things I did for myself early on in my grief, which just this just reminded me of it, people said so many things. And even though I knew they meant well, it was not helpful. So for me, again, as a writer, what was helpful for me is I kept a list and I just called it dumb things people have said to me because it helped me like just to put it to the side. Like I know they meant well, but that was not helpful. Right. So and one of them is always that if it starts with at least. So is when you're supporting your person, if you hear yourself thinking, at least just don't say it. And when you want to actually do something physical, something for them that's helpful, whether it's cooking food, running errands, picking up kids, if they have kids, whatever it is, instead of asking someone, what can I do for you? Make a couple suggestions and then ask them if it's okay. Because the person who's deeply grieving, we don't know what we need. We don't know. Um, I always share this example. My neighbor, John, who is just the kindest man, um, he used to cut my grass and he would never tell me he was going to do it. He just would cut my grass. And it was one of the sweetest things to do to support me. And quite honestly, I was so distraught at the time. It would usually take me a couple of days to realize my grass had been cut. Um, and he never, like he, he didn't even knock on the door. He just would cut my grass. So when I'm supporting someone grieving, that's what I think of. Like, what's my version of just showing up and cutting the grass for them so that I can alleviate a little something of the day that's just part of our day, like pick up dry cleaning, pick up groceries, you know, um, somebody on our podcast, I got to share this because it was brilliant. She said what she does is she brings paper plates and plasticware even though I don't believe in more plastic in the, you know, in the land, but that's a whole nother thing. But she brings, cause part of what happens is people bring you food, but doing the dishes is horrible. Right. So she's like, that's her thing. And she doesn't even like, she will literally leave it and leave it at the door and, and not say hello. Um, and so I've added that to my list of things that I will do for someone grieving. Even making a list. I'm like, I need to start making my list. Like that's, that is advice in itself. So that's so beautiful. You've said so much. Annie, you are an incredible human. And please, as we close out here, please share with myself and our listeners where we can find you. So Coffee, Grief, and Gratitude as an incredible podcast, of course. Your book, The Fifth Chamber. Your Coffee and Grief Facebook events. Anywhere else that uh, you want to direct us to go? Yeah. On Facebook, we have a private page that's called, we're all about coffee. It's like, have a warm cup of coffee and let's talk. That's where that came from. So we also have coffee and grief community, which you can ask to join. We'd love to have you join it. That's where a lot of interaction takes place. As part of that, we have a monthly reading series. So the first Thursday of every month, um, I curate five readers 
and they read a short piece about their grief story. It's not a question and answer time. It's just a time for people to come together and really get to hear genuine stories. We started it the first week when we were all sheltering during the pandemic. We thought it would be a short-term thing. It is not. It is a, it's a force all unto itself. Um, we are having our 50th reading, which I'm still astounded that we're at, at number 50, which means that um, we've hosted over 250 readers. Uh, so that for me is like, let's put a microphone to grief. That's one way I have literally put a microphone to grief. And so you can purchase your Annie's book and Gudger, The Fifth Chamber from any local bookstore. bookstore. You can have them order it in. You can buy it from bookshop.org as well. You can order it if you're in the U.S. Or worst case scenario, you can order it from Amazon. So there you go. Annie, until next time, my uh, my heart is so full. I I appreciate you. I thank you. I love you. And I am so grateful for you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful that you are the ways that you are learning and growing and the ways that you are um, contributing to grief literacy, right? Doing something with your horrible experience that is going to help others because that to me is what this is all about and I love you so much so I'm hugging you through my camera from here yes all right well listeners thank you for joining us for another episode of the house of mourning you can follow me on my instagram joelle speaks and that is all we have for you for today until next time with the house of mourning Thank you.